Brother Dave done a tremendous job last week in teaching on transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua and the job that Joshua done. Today we're going to be uh, addressing the topic of getting a deliverer for the people. And our lesson today is going to focus on God's strength delivers his people from difficult situations. And I think we could probably all vouch for that. Before I get into the context of the lesson this morning, it's imperative that we do a little history review, some things that you may already know. But at the close of, of Joshua's rule and his leadership, Joshua had begun to see some things taking place among God's people that troubled him. Troubled him to the point that he called a national assembly, if you will. He was growing up in years. He had watched for many years. He had successfully led Israel into the promised land. They were dwelling in a land that they did not have to labor for. Life was good. Things were good. No one was bugging them. God had taken care of them. He had driven out their enemies. And, but Joshua began to see a trend among the ranks of Israel, and he felt it necessary to address this particular situation. In fact, one of the scriptures that you hear us preachers quote a lot comes from that address that Joshua gave that day when he said, But as for me and my house... We're going to serve the Lord. Joshua began to see the people revert back to and ever so slightly move towards accepting and integrating the worship of heathen nations and idolatry within their own ranks. So much so that he called this assembly. He gathers all of them together and he tells them, Look, I'm up in years. It's not going to be long till I'm going to be gone off the scene. And he very candidly expresses to them his concerns. He tells them, I'm seeing some things coming into the camp of Israel that God said, No. Do not. In this address, Joshua warns these people of what will happen if they continue down the path that they were going down. He said, look, the day's coming. I'm going to go away to the earth. And he said, you know in all your hearts and all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you all have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. In other words, he's saying everything God told you he has done, everything he has promised he has done, everything God has, he has kept his end of the bargain and then some, if I may put it in, common vernacular.
But he said, listen, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you, just as he has given you all of the good. If you're not careful, you're going to get the bad to go with it. So he goes on one step further. He said, when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Now Joshua begins at this point in their history to give them a very straightforward and solemn warning. If you continue and you do what it appears to me that you are up to, you're about to do, you're going to get in trouble. And being the man he was and the leader he was, he felt that it was imperative to give a warning because God does not, he does not initiate judgment without there first being a warning. God gives us plenty time to repent and to take care of things. So then Joshua gathers all the tribes of Israel together. What a, what a gathering together they had. Everybody come together, and he went through line by line everything God had done for them and how he had delivered them, how he brought them from Egypt to the promised land. He went, he did not leave a stone unturned in going back and looking back in retrospect and pointing out, look, Here's some things. In other words, he said, you folks need to understand God has done this, this, this. He has gone through and he went specifically line by line. Now, he said, today I'm calling on you to make a decision. Looking back and seeing all that God has done, Joshua says to Israel, I'm calling on you to make a decision today who you're going to serve. Now, that perhaps does not seem too important in the scope of what we're going to talk about today, but it is. Because it sets the groundwork for what we're going to talk about by the time Gideon came on the scene. He said, you need to choose right now. He said, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves and your, your free moral agents. Make a choice. In other words, he's saying, but don't do this in hypocrisy because, listen, you have the option. You can go back and serve the gods your father served on the other side of the river, back in Egypt, or else you can get down to business here and you can serve the Lord and things will be well. It's your choice. He said, choose yourself whom you'll serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites and who's, you know, you can choose. You can go back and serve them or you can serve the God of the Amorites, which is here right now, which dwell among you. He probably want to say at that point, by the way, I've already seen some of that stuff you brought in. But he didn't. He said, make a choice. But he said, as for me and my house, he said, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, y'all do what you want to do. Make the choice, but as for me and my house, as for the house of Joshua, 
We are going to serve the Lord. Oh, and the people just went in an upward. Oh, no, listen, listen. Far be it from us that we for, should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. No way. Joshua, please. What are you seeing that even caused you to think such a thing? Far be it from us to go out there and serve other gods. Oh, they went on to say, well, the Lord your God, whoever their spokesman was, want to say, for the Lord your God, He has, He has delivered us, who's brought us. You notice how they said that the Lord, or said, the Lord our God has delivered us. He is who brought us our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, and my goodness, He's preserved us all this way, and the Lord drove out all the people, including the Amorites, and we will also serve the Lord, for He is our God. Oh, they're signing the indictment. He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm, consume you, after He has done you good. The people said to Joshua again, Oh, no, no, no. But we will serve the Lord. Joshua said, okay. But he said, understand this. You are witnesses today. You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve Him. You've made the choice. You, we are, And they said, oh yeah, yeah, we're witnesses. We made a choice. We're going to serve the Lord. He said, ah, oh, now here's what you're going to have to do. Put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. They had already started slipping. He said, the gods which you have incorporated in your worship from the Amorites and the, and the Midianites, and he said, you, you better get rid of them. Now, let's jump ahead in history to our lesson today. In fact, let me be so bold as to tell you that after the death of Joshua, the Israelites fell into such a set pattern that the author of the book of Judges was able to simply begin by summarizing the sequence of events and then show how it played out through the lines of the Judges. If you go through the book of Judges, you'll find it over and over again. And again, Israel done evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, Israel done evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord would raise up a deliverer. They'd get them back on the right road again. And then it wasn't long until again, Israel done evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, apostasy came first in the repeated cycle of events recorded throughout the book of Judges. After Joshua and the whole generation passed away, the Israelites repeatedly turned to idolatry and worshipped the gods of the Canaanites, and this is why I thought it was so important to bring out to you again the history. Joshua's seen it. He's seen it happening. He's seen it coming. And he, re he warned them extensively, look, don't go down that road. Once the people slipped deeply into sin, the Lord brought defeat on the battlefield and oppression from foreign powers. 
You'll see it time and time again. In today's lesson, we're going to see the tyranny in the form of who you'll come to know as the Midianites. They cruelly exploited Israel for seven years. They just aggravated the daylights out of them. After suffering at the hands of their enemies for a period of time, the people begin to cry out. They begin to cry out for deliverance. And because of God's great mercy, and because of His great love for His people, He raised up a deliverer. Amen. He raised up a deliverer. And while the Lord was raising up Gideon to deliver his people from the Midianites, Israel suffered for seven years until they were ready to turn from their sin and be delivered one more time. Now, let me say this. It's not always sin. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that if you're encountering some problems and difficulties and troubles that it's an issue of sin. It may not be an issue of sin. It's not always sin that brings about difficulty and problems in our life. I mean, life is life. Sometimes it's just a matter of life that brings about what we are going through. So I don't want you to think that it's always sin that prevents us from being delivered from difficult situations. Because here's the thing. We must establish if we're going through a difficult time, is it sin or is it a lesson that God is trying to teach us through the, through the normal process of going through situations? No, this is true. And there's a lot we wouldn't learn if we didn't have the difficult times. Because it's through those difficult times we learn of his amazing goodness and his grace. It's through those difficult times we learn of how he is able to deliver in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. It's through those difficult times that we develop a trust and a faith in him that we otherwise would not have because it's experientially that we learn you don't just automatically end up with a basket full of faith and say, here we go. But it's experientially as we go through these processes that we learn and we grow in faith because, hey, he did it over here. He'll do it again. That's right. You know, sometimes it feels like God gives people strength to go through their trials more often than he actually delivers them from their difficulties. Have you ever noticed that? And, and I believe that this principle is more true than, uh, in most occasions than not because there is a hidden deception that works within this framework as well. And if, if is his deliverance only to be seen? Let me, let me inject a couple questions here. Is his deliverance only to be seen in his grace to give us perseverance until our trials pass? Or does God still desire to simply enter into our troubles and rescue us from them? I think we may need to make room for both. Absolutely. You see, that's right. We can find examples both in scriptures and we can look back in our life and find examples as well. Where God delivered us. 
absolutely stepped in on the scene, and we know for a fact it was divine intervention and deliverance that brought us out. While there's other times we look back and we look in retrospect and we see where God gave us the strength and the grace to see us through it until it finally was over. Amen. Let's go to Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Oh, she's already got them up there. There it is. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Joshua told them. There's often times I sit across the desk, my desk from folks, and I'd like to say to them, I told you so. But we refrain. Yeah, we don't want, don't want to rub salt in an old wound. And there's times when we, and I'll say more about this a little bit from a prophetic standpoint. There's times we have to say things from, prophetic, from a prophetic standpoint that are not nice to those who have to hear it. But it's part of the job. It's part of the task of being an instrument and a vessel for God. We oftentimes have to say things that really don't always set well. Again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for them in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Wherever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, other eastern peoples invaded the country. They just had a whole parade coming in there and messing up their life. There are consequences and some things that we need to really grasp from this. Although everything is not, everything problem in our life and every difficulty is not a consequence of sin, there are consequences when we sin. And sin is simply disobeying God. You don't have to go out and rob a 7-Eleven in order to be in sin. We can just omit things and be in sin. It doesn't necessarily have to be a sin of commission. We can see something or the, or, or the, the word of the Lord can teach us something. We can just omit it from our life and it's sin. If we omit it from application. Amen? And sin always brings destruction. As it did for the Israelites at the time of Gideon, it's the same thing today. I want to say something here, and I want to say this very carefully. Well, let me say it like this. Any nation or any society of people that turn away from or omit God and will not acknowledge Him as the Creator of the universe and the God of all living things will somewhere pay the price. And if they turn against Israel, they do not know nor do they comprehend the havoc that will be wreaked upon them at some point in time within their history. 
It's the Bible. It's the way it is, whether we like it, whether we don't like it, whether we like Jewish people, whether we don't like Jewish people, whether we're anti-Semitic, whatever you want to call it, that's the way it is. The Bible says that any nation that goes against them will pay the utmost price. I just choose to believe the Bible. It's happened down through history. History says it all, if, if folks want to look at history. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there for good measure. The Israelites had stopped obeying God, and what happened was they began to bring into their form of worship, or they began to bring into their lifestyle the things that the gods of the Midianites and the Amalekites and those that they served on the gods of the other side of Egypt started bringing them into their lifestyle. And God allowed the Midianites to conquer the land and enslave his people. You see, the longer that an individual is in sin, or a group of people are in sin, the worse the circumstances become, which is what happened here to the nation of Israel. Let's talk about those Midianites for a little bit. Where are the, who are these people and where in the world they come from? Well, the Midianites, they did actually descend from Abraham. They were never a part of the covenant people that included Isaac and the descendants of Jacob. Now, understand that. They were never a part of that covenant people. You see, after Sarah died, Abraham took another wife by the name of Keturah. And he had more children by, by Keturah, including Midian. Now, the Midianites were mainly nomads, and they just basically roamed around and stirred up trouble. Yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, there's, yeah I suppose so. Yeah, I don't, I don't know too much about that. But. And they just basically roamed around. They were nomads dwelling basically out in the desert with really no clearly distinguished or recognized boundaries. And they just, every time they got a chance, they'd go stir some trouble up. They'd go over to the neighbor's house and take some stuff. You know, whatever this, just whatever they wanted to do, that's what they'd done. Something like what those bunch of rascals are doing out there in the, on the ocean now with what they call pirates or whatever, just going by. They see a ship out there they can take over, they go take it over. And when Moses fled from Egypt, he ended up with a group of the Midianites that included Jethro and his seven daughters. Remember that? Jethro became his father-in-law. One of those daughters, as I just mentioned, became his wife, and Moses spent 40 years in that area with the Midianites before God called him back to Egypt to lead Israel out of slavery. In fact, that's where he was hiding out at when God went up and tapped on his shoulder through the burning bush and said, uh, we got some things to do, pal. In fact, the Midianites also pursued some trading. They were, in fact, they were part of that Ishmaelite caravan and traders who bought Joseph and sold him into slavery down in Egypt. Oh yeah, they were there again. They just keep popping up. Wherever there was kind of some trouble and some kind of things going on that maybe not that you'd find the Midianites there. You ever know anybody like that in school? You ever know anybody like that? Wherever's trouble, somebody always has to oh, yep, there they are. 
later on when the Israelites were in the Transjordan and preparing to enter the Promised Land, the elders of the Midianites and the Moabites, they remember this, you'll find it in, uh, in the book of Numbers, they, they thought they'd be cute and they'd hire Balaam to curse God's people. That backfired. Oh, yeah, yeah, there, there, it was, it, there were the Midianites again. Them along, with the, them along with the Moabites, they're going to go hire Balaam to curse Israel because they seen that Israel was too much for them to handle. So if we could get Balaam to go out and curse Israel, then... Whew. And Balaam got up and blessed them. you got to love it. It was obvious from some things that historians tell us that was Midianite women were evidently involved in leading Israel into apostasy. And, and five Midianite kings were slain by the Israelites. But primarily the Midianites, just for the sake of our historical point today, they traveled about the desert area and at times they just caused a great deal of trouble to their neighbors and just stirred stuff up. you got to love a bunch like that. So here's Israel. It's been seven years now. The Midianites have just made their life absolute disaster. They have had to go try to build residence up in the clefts of the rocks in the mountainous areas of Israel. and They'd go plant crops, and as soon as the about to harvest time, well, here come the Midianites and the Amalekites and some of the eastern folks in, and they'd take all the crops and left Israel with nothing and if they, they tried to do anything with the crops, they had to hide. Judges chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Tells us that when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Now back in these days... Let me just stop there for a moment to insert this in your thoughts. When a prophet come to town, it usually meant trouble. Not that he was a bad guy. But generally there was something going terribly awry. And God had come and knocked on his door and said, uh, you need to go down to so-and-so and so-and-so and tell them, uh, here's the deal. Yeah, yeah, it's just several times that do you come. The prophet was coming there, sending messengers out. Do you come in peace or whoo, is this going to be one of those? In fact, there were certain prophets that had some pretty good reputations for being pretty blunt, straightforward. So the prophet comes to town and he says, Now look, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. It's not me saying it. Well, we've heard that a lot. It's not me saying it, but it, here's what the Lord says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all of your oppressors. 
I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Uh, how, how, how do you respond to that? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and again, throughout the book of Judges, we see up to this point, and it just continues on. If you, you you'll find, you know, uh, throughout the, the Israelites repeatedly fell into sin. They became oppressed, and by one of their enemies and ended up crying, you know, over and over and over and over. This just continued on. Now, uh, you know, a time or two you can kind of understand, but this just went on for hundreds of years. They went up to the time of the kings, and then kings came on the scene. And You know the story of Saul, how he, he went... And they went through that rash throughout the kings and recorded in the kings and chronicles where just one evil king after another. Then they'd get a good king, and then there was an evil king come up, and then there was a good king. And it was all the time, and again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I don't, I don't want you to think too harshly of these folks. It's just part of human nature. They didn't have the Holy Spirit as we have it. Help them along the way and, and so forth and so on, but that's just the way history unfolded. And here in Judges chapter 6, we find this cycle again. And as soon as the Israelites fell into sin, the Lord allowed the Midianites to oppress. That's part of that thing of the law of the harvest. We're going to reap what we sow. That's an immutable law. When God says, just like he told Adam, he said the day... You can have anything here in the garden you want to eat except for one fruit of one tree. Do not touch that tree. Now the day you do. The day you do. Here comes the curse. You're going to die. Now we know that God did not mean that actual literal day. But death was not death was not an object, or it, nor was it in the plan up until that point. You know, he lived to be what nine hundred and fifty-one, was it nine hundred and fifty, something like that? But anyway, you know the end result of that. But God always says, "Here's the blessing in your obedience. Here's the curse if you disobey." The Midianites and their allies, they just swarmed the land. And they overwhelmed the Israelites with their numbers. They were just outnumbered tremendously, as the story tells us a little bit later on. And they dwelt in the farming and pasture lands, and they just plundered the crops and livestock. And there's nothing Israel could do about it. They were outnumbered. They, if they tried to fight them, they would just get killed and... Now, all they could do was hide in the clefts. What a miserable life. I wouldn't want to live that way, would you? What a miserable lifestyle. I just had to kind of, you know, run out and grab a tomato and run in and hide with it. Or try to sneak out and crouch down real low and pick a few beans, whatever it was they pick. I'm just throwing things out that I'm familiar with. And run back in and hide with them. 
In fact, we're going to talk about in a minute minute where God found Gideon. And again, the prophet, when he comes, he reminds them of what God had done for them in the past and why they were now in these current circumstances. The prophet, he explained their current situation was the result of the people's own disobedience. There was no one else to blame but themselves. Amen. Amen. So God sends the people a prophet. He lets them know why he had allowed the Midianites to oppress them. He lets, reminds them of how they had forgotten him. He reminds them of how he delivered them from the land of slavery in Egypt. Turned away, turned, and then he turned away from him to worship the gods that the people possessed in the land. And the prophet reminds them of God's power in driving out the inhabitants of the land before them. You didn't have to raise a sword. You didn't have to fight. I drove, literally, drove them out of the land. Which probably just made it more of a mystery as to why they would worship the gods who had been so helpless in the past. Have you ever wondered why someone would turn to an entity or a God that has literally been helpless in the past away from the God who we know? I've often often said, and it just never ceases to astound me, that speaking in more of of a local context, that oftentimes people around the church when trouble comes, instead of running toward the source of strength, they run away. I, 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 I just go, huh? David talked about, where do I go? He said, I'm going to go to the rock. When trouble comes and when problems come, and, and, and a good illustration of that is when he was confronted with his sin, he did not run away from grace and mercy. He ran towards it. He knew he was going to have to suffer for his wrong. He knew he was going to have to pay a price because the law of the harvest. But he didn't run the other direction. He ran too. And I, I just often, it just, I, I don't know, it's probably one of those things that just kind of gets in my crawl and, and I wonder why we have the propensity to run away from God in times of trouble, even when he's chastising us for our wrong, instead of running to him. My mom always told us, if you run from me, I never ran from mom or dad when they told us we were going to get it. 
My sister did once, my late sister. My mom was expecting our youngest brother, the baby of the family. And I was 13 years old. It's 1963. That's bad when I start telling you these dates. I'm, I've gone over the... My wife says, you're going to make a good senior citizen. I said, the key there is going to. My sister done something or didn't do something and which she was notorious for. God bless her heart. Sweet little thing. She, my mom was going to give her, told her to go out and cut a little switch off the tree. Well, my sister come bailing out the back door to go cut the switch. Instead of cutting the switch, she headed out across the cornfield. I said, Denise, you don't want to do that. No, don't want to do that. Telling you, you don't want to do that. Well, it wasn't but a minute or two. Mom comes out the back door and she looks at me and she says, Son, go get her and bring her back to me. What was I to do? The moment of a lifetime had just presented itself. All the grief this girl has caused me finally. I so I headed out across the field. I snatched her up. She's a kicking and a screaming and going on, throwing her over my shoulder and took her back to mom. Boy, she got it. Don't ever run. Don't ever run. Don't ever run from God's chastening. It'd only get worse. Amen. It will only get worse. Let me just tell you, God can use any person, any individual to deliver the message that he needs to deliver to his people. It doesn't have to come from my lips. It doesn't have to come from Brother David's lips. It doesn't have to come from the bishop's lips. It, you know, he, God can use whoever he chooses to use. It's his prerogative. I kind of grew up in that school of thought from those I hung around it. If the pastor didn't say it, it obviously wasn't worth saying, which was, which was false. Have you ever come up in the old school in the Pentecostal movement? That's kind of the way it was. He was the... But anyway, I won't go into that. I'll make somebody, offend somebody. But God called Gideon at a time when Gideon felt that he wasn't even worthy. There was no pretentiousness about Gideon. In fact, the, the truth is, whoever God calls, he strengthens and gives the ability and what they need to do to accomplish what he's called them to do. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean we don't need to seek education. That doesn't mean we don't need to seek, Paul told Timothy to study to show himself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm not saying that that circumvents the need for study and application and, and so forth. But God, whoever he calls, he strengthens 
and prepares for His work. As I look back over the many years that I've been involved in ministry, there were things that my wife and I encountered and went through in the early days of our ministry that I look back now and know those were times of preparation. God was preparing us for what was down the road which we had no idea. And He does prepare us not only through the educational process as we study, but through the events and, 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 the, and the things of life. He prepares us for the ministry. Things that are said to me today, uh, things that I've seen people watch people down through the years at that particular time would have shocked me and blowed me out of the water. But now it's, oh, well, because God has prepared and taught and educated and, and brought us to that point. Gideon, just to give you an idea of what was going on in Gideon's life, he was hiding from the Midianites. And he even complained to God about the people's circumstances, but God said that he would empower Gideon to deliver him. Now here's what the Bible says. Let's look at uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. And the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah. That's not Oprah now. There's an H in there. Ophrah. That belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat. I see something wrong here. Why would you be threshing wheat in a wine press? What? That's exactly right. To keep it from the Midianites. You talk about living in troubled times. He's down in a wine press thrashing wheat. That just is that just is backwards any way you look at it. And we'll talk about that a little and give you a little historical data on that in a minute. When the angel of the Lord appeared to get in, he said, The Lord is what? The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Now that just that just comes across as an absolute contradiction. Here's Gideon now. He's down in a wine press. He's not up on a hilltop somewhere threshing wheat. The whole idea behind threshing wheat is you thresh it and shake it real hard and the wind blows the chaff away and leaves the wheat there. He's down in a wine press. But the angel of the Lord says to him, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Gideon probably went, what? Have you lost your mind? Oh, yeah, you're a mighty warrior. No, yeah. But, sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Now, that sounds like a question I'd come up with. Uh-huh. All right, then why is all this going on? If you're with us, why is this happening? And why is that going on? What's happening here? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? See, we got a generation on the scene now that only heard the stories. They didn't live to see. Now, you see, I'm kind of on that threshold, being, a, being the young age that I am, I remember... Some of the tough days, I remember seeing some things back in my young years that Grandpa and Grandma experienced in their walk with the Lord that still is fresh enough in my mind that 
But we've got a generation coming up after us that really don't know what it is to live through difficult times. Folks, we're not in difficult times yet. It's getting there. It's getting there. I'm talking about times when you had to pray for your next meal. I'm talking about times when you knew that in order to survive, you had to depend on the hand of God to bring you through. My grandpa and grandma and my dad in his young years during, born in 1925, lived through those times. Some of you were around then. I say that very cautiously. (laughs) But what happened here that a generation had come on the scene that had only heard the stories about God's amazing goodness and His power for deliverance? They never lived through it. As tragic as this may sound, until we live through it, and we understand things experientially, we really just don't grasp the magnitude of God's ability. But Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him, like pointing his finger at him, said, Gideon, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Doesn't matter what you have now, Gideon. The fact of the matter is that I, Almighty God, Creator, am sending you, and that's all you need to know. That's all you need. Amen? That's all we need. The location of Ophrah is somewhat of a mystery. Most scholars agree that really they don't know where exactly. They think that the town was located west of the Jordan River in the northern portion of the territory belonging to the tribe of Manasseh. But that's only speculation. We really don't know for sure. Perhaps it was in the Jezreel Valley. Joash, we understand, who was a descendant of Abizar, owned property down in Ophrah, according to the Bible, but we don't really know exactly where it was at. In case you're trying to find out where that town's at, you want to go visit it. Weed in a wine press. Now, a wine press was typically, just to kind of give you a little idea of what was going on here in this day, was typically at the bottom of the hill where the grapes could be carried downhill to the press. They would load up them staves across their shoulders with clusters of grapes. Down the hill they would go to the wine press, take them off, and they'd go in the wine press where somebody would get in that wine press with their feet. Hopefully barefooted without their sneakers on. Wash their feet before they got in. <laughs> Louis passed here would have had a fit, wouldn't he? <laughs> anyway, he... 
and this wine press was down there, and, and, and generally the threshing floor, they wanted a threshing floor for the wheat was generally on, on top of the hill, whereas they would thresh the wheat, there would be enough breeze and wind blowing that would blow the chaff away. You ever been out driving along and see them combines in, in early summer as they're out there combining the wheat? And it just looks like a huge dust storm around them if it's very windy at all. That's chaff blowing away. In that big old bin you see rounded off the top, that's the pure wheat. That's the way they thrash the wheat now. Cuts it, pulls it up, brings it inside this machine, beats the chaff all off of it, pulls the wheat out, puts it up in a big old bin that holds about two or three hundred, three hundred fifty bushel, and away they go. Back in Gideon's days, he's down in this wine press where there's no air flowing, trying to thrash wheat because of the Midianites instead of up on the hill. The reason being is he can only thrash in small amount of wheat at a time. The Midianites would come and take it. Oh, that's nice of you, Gideon. Thrash our wheat for us. We'll go home and make some bread. Have a nice day. They were rascals like that. So the act of threshing wheat in a widened press showed the desperation of the people to resort to such a tactic to preserve their crops. It was times of desperation. And times of desperation will force us to do things in a manner that we won't normally do. It will cause us to conserve in ways that we don't normally conserve in. Hey. Amen. Now, Gideon, as we see him in his first appearance here in Scripture, he seems to be fearful. He seems to be weak in faith. Don't let that fool you. He questions his calling, and then he uses the wool fleece. You remember the story how he uses? He's, you know, he's kind of like us. He's just your ordinary kind of guy. Are you sure, Lord? Well... How about if we do this? I'm going to put a fleece of wool out here, and if it's you that's really calling me to do this, tomorrow morning I'd like for that wool just to be sopping wet, and the grass all around there be no dew. Okay. So the next morning, Gideon gets up, and sure enough, he can just wring the water out of that wool, and there's no moisture on the ground at all. You know how it is in the morning you go out and walk through the yard, and your feet soaking wet from the dew. Oh, thank you, God. Uh, can, I, can I approach you one more time? I, I really still got this question, Mark, in the, in, in the back line. Can we just, this time I'll put the fleece out, and I'll put the wool out there, and this time you make it do all around the wool, but the wool's dry. Will that be too much to ask? Oh, okay. So he does it again, sure enough. He gets up the next morning and the, the grass around it just drenched with dew and the wool as dry as it can be. Now, 
much like we would do? What could God do with someone who appears so cowardly and untrusting? How did he go from seeming so weak in faith to being mentioned as an example of faith in the book of Hebrews chapter 12? Gideon's name is mentioned in the hall of faith. Amen? Well, the key to understanding and appreciate Gideon is to remember that once God convinced him of his calling, here's what changed things. He totally obeyed the Lord and relied on his strength. That makes the difference. What God had promised him, he embraced. In fact, you remember the story, and I'm not going to go into all the details because constraints of time. Time's about up, and I'm just getting started good. Gideon... The Lord said, all right, here you go. Get out there. Let's take care of the millions. The people's cried. I'm, I'm going to take care of business now. So they head off to battle. Gideon gathers up everybody he can gather up and every living soul he can find comes to about 32,000 men. They were outnumbered absolutely severely. I think I figured up one time like 150 some to one or something like that. I, I didn't do the math off this morning, but... My memory serves me correctly. It's just an unbelievable amount of people. He's looking pretty good with 32,000. Things are looking right. I don't know what God's going to do, but I'm telling you right now, with God and these 32,000 men, we can, have, we, can, we can raise some cane now. Oh, God said, no, that's too many. What? Yeah, that, that's too many. Send some of them home. Oh, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, send, send, send a bunch of those folks home. That's too many. So he does. He obeys the Lord. Sends a bunch of them home. Yeah, we're still not looking too bad. We certainly don't have the number we have now, but had at the beginning, but, you know, all those that are fearful and so forth and so on. They, they went to the house. Found their, found their place in the cleft of the rock, and that's where they were hiding, waiting to hear word of what happened with Gideon and this band of men that went out there, or, or Gideon and find out what's happened this band of men that went out to fight Midian. So they're moseying along. They're getting ready, thinking, trying to come up with a strategy for battle. And you, know, you know how a military guy would do. He's, he's thinking, now, let's see, how are we going to? But the Lord said to get in, you know what, get in, there's still too many. What? Yeah, take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. Oh, no. Yeah, go down to the water. I'll sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go, he's not going anywhere. Oh, boy. <clears throat> They ended up with 300 people. 300 men laughed with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Verse 7, please. The Lord said to Gideon with the 300 men which you laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go each to his own place. Whew. 
And Gideon obeyed. God raised up a leader. God is raising up leaders for the day and hour in which we live today. In fact, I sense that God is calling people back and pulling people together. Amen. Gideon followed God's instructions in how to use these 300 soldiers against such a large host of Midianites. And as a result, delivered the people of Israel from their dire conditions. God worked it out in such a way that the Midianites destroyed themselves. They literally imploded. They thought an army had overtaken them, the likes of which they had never known before. And all God done was took these 300 men and upon Gideon's word, blew the trumpet, made a bunch of noise, and God turned up the amplifier and it sounded like the whole world had come down on those Midianites. And when they started running and killing each other, they didn't stop till they were done. Deliver for the people. Amen. God bless you. Let's take a few moments. Come back in just a few minutes. I run real late this morning.